You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. Today, we are joined by the, um, I don't know, now internationally acclaimed um, uh, expert on breath testing devices, Jan Semenov. He's joined us previously on the podcast, um, and he's joining us today to talk about a recent article that he was featured in out of the New York Times, as well as a uh, panel discussion with uh, NPR in the United States about massive problems with breath testing In the United States, we're going to get into some of how that impacts us here in Canada. Um, And then also, uh, if we have time, talk about a couple interesting issues surrounding breath testing and um, diet. So lots to talk about. And without further ado, here is Jan. Hello, Jan. Thank you for joining us again on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me back. Oh, anytime. Um, So you're now like internationally famous in breath testing. Well, I wouldn't say internationally famous. The uh, the New York Times article certainly has uh, gotten some traction, and I've had a lot of phone calls actually since the article. But I wouldn't I wouldn't go as far as saying I'm famous. So tell us about this the the article. For I mean, I've read it, and you are in it. Um, but for all of our listeners who haven't read it, the focus is on problems with breast breath breast testing <laughs> breath testing. Um, Tell me about some of the examples that were used in the article. Well, first of all, um, let's, let's, let's go back one step. I spent more than a year talking to reporters from the New York Times in regards to that article. Wow. Um, they originally came out to see me in a, in a presentation that I was giving. Stacy Cowley uh, came out to see me, I should say, in a presentation that I was giving in New York City. And she interviewed me before and after the presentation and actually invited me down to the New York Times for a tour and, and to meet everybody. And that was quite cool, I have to tell you. Um, but they spent probably the next year researching things and uh, taking a look at issues in breath testing. And there's, there's, there's two things that are really fascinating about it. First of all, um, I didn't give them any direction on, well, you should look into this or you should look into that. I gave them background material and supplied them support material so that they could learn about breath testing. They're, um, their learning curve was really high mm-hmm. because they're, you know, they're they're reporters. They're not lawyers. They're not scientists. They're not cops. Uh, so they had to learn everything there was about breath testing to find out what was good, what was bad, and what was ugly. Because I didn't point them in any specific direction, I thought their findings were really interesting because they uncovered basically independently um, what many of us have known about breath testing for a lot of years. And mm-hmm. so I, I thought that was a, a great deal of scrutiny. The second thing that's really interesting is that that article has generated so much interest. There's a, when, when you're published in the New York Times, when a story comes out in a place like the Times, um, it, it garners, A, a lot of interest, but B, a lot of traction. And all of a sudden then, um, I was getting media requests from other outlets print and television, radio, to, um, to give um, uh, talks about, about breath testing and what those findings had been. So 
the, the exposure that that article has given has been great because what it's done is it's it started to uh, unpeel the mask behind breath testing and, and is letting people know in no uncertain terms that there are issues here that need to be addressed. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. Um, so what, from from having been interviewed in the article and, and obviously not pointing them in any particular direction, but from your own experience and having read the article now, what do you think are the biggest issues with breath testing that really need to be unpacked? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I actually then turned around for CounterPoint and I, I interviewed Stacey Cowley. I thought it would make a great article for, for my readers. Um, and so I interviewed her and, and I asked her what her, her thoughts were for the findings. And we agreed that probably, you know, 80, 85% of the time, breath testing is a relatively reliable indicator, you know, plus or minus the tolerances of a device being used. On, on what the actual blood alcohol concentration is for a person providing a breath sample. Mm-hmm. Majority of the time, probably not an issue. It's those other, you know, 15, 20% that, that are of concern. And we've got, we've got two major issues. Number one, there are some fundamental design flaws, and it's a limitation of the technology more than anybody building a bad device. It's just you're, you're not going to get, in all circumstances, a reliable breath test no. because of some of the assumptions that are made with the devices and some of the technology that's used. As an example, it's really hard to get um, a valid slope detector that's going to provide a flag when there's uh, mouth alcohol contamination in the breath sample. It's and really just, just for people who are not familiar with the, with the technology, the slope detector is, is the mechanism that's uh, in the instrument uh, that looks for a rapidly declining alcohol level um, or a CO2 level, as the case may be, to try and ensure that the sample's measuring blood alcohol as opposed to breath alcohol. Right. And, and more than that, it's trying to make sure that it's, it's measuring a sample that's truly representative of the blood alcohol concentration and not falsely elevated by contaminant that could be in, in the mouth, in the oral pathway, you know, uh, dentures, et cetera, et cetera, that would trap alcohol and give a false positive reading. So that was a, of, of concern. The second thing that was of really of concern was that not all people, I mean, we're not all cookie cutter people, right? You're physiologically different than me. I'm different than Paul Doroshenko. Paul's different than, you know, anybody else. Everybody's got their own unique physical characteristics and they bring it to the table when they provide a breath sample. The assumption that's made by doing a test like a breath test is that we're all the same and we're all going to respond to the unit in the same way. And it became really clear to the New York Times people that, oh, not everybody is, is the same. Um, and people are going to have different physiological responses. The big concern, though, and their huge finding, was that there is uh, almost a reliance on the push-button technology of breath testing without a full appreciation or understanding about its limitations, Mm -hmm. and people have become complacent over the years. Well, especially because they like to make, you know, all of the new instruments that are being put out there, the more that they um, that they put them out there, the more they make them, you know, so-called idiot-proof in that right. it's, it is as much push-button technology as possible. But as they say, you can't make things idiot-proof because idiots are pretty unreliable. And they will do <laughs> things 
not necessarily that are, are following. Wait, now, now this is where I get to all of a sudden start telling you about, you know, walking to school uphill against the wind both ways. <laughs> there's the, no uh, hills in Saskatchewan, Jan. No, there's, yeah, we, we have three. Come on. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's interesting. When I was trained originally in 1990, Oh, man, almost 30 years ago now that you think about it. Um, I was trained originally by the RCMP as a breathalyzer technician. I'm talking the old breathalyzer now. And that device was really very much a manual, hands-on experience. You had to know exactly what was going on. You had to uh, do all the air blanks and the purges and the calibrations and set the entire thing up manually. Mm-hmm. There was a checklist that was about 75 steps long. And an operator really had to be competent and know what they were doing so that they, they were receiving a good sample that wasn't contaminated, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The worst thing that happened to breath testing was the reliance on electronic technology. And now all of a sudden, all you had to do was push the green button and have the person blow into the device. And I've heard so many technicians in court say something along the lines when they're asked by a lawyer, you know, well, what happened with such and such situation? And they're answering something along the lines of, I don't know about that. I'm trained to push the green button. Mm -hmm. That's where we're falling down. That's where we're relying upon, you know, foolproof technology that's not. And I've got a concern that people are being falsely accused, um, being falsely charged based on that lack of foolproof technology. So would you, if you had it your way, would you go back to the way it used to be where the operator had to do as many of the steps as possible? No. no I, <laughs> Why not? I, <laughs> because because i got to tell you, kind of at 3 o'clock in the morning when you're um, getting called in to do a breath test and you're, you're confronted with a 75-step procedural checklist that has to be done exactly to a tenth of a degree Celsius and using, um, uh, you know, calibration standards that were exacting and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Very difficult to do. Not not insurmountable, but it was only a competent operator. It was only a well-trained operator that was able to do the job correctly. What I would like to see is, yes, an acknowledgement that the push-button technology is not as foolproof as the manufacturers would like us to believe. And and a return to the time where the operator was really well-trained, well-prepared, and capable of understanding what was kind of going on behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Now, luckily in Canada, we're still basically doing that. We've still got a situation where operators are trained for you know four or five days training. Down in the United States, in many jurisdictions, you can become a breath tech operator in as little as four hours. And in situations like that, you don't know anything else other than to push the green button and, and pray. I was going to say, so, like, I'm pretty sure I can turn an ECIR on and get a successful sample that's not contaminated by mouth alcohol. In fact, I've done it, but that does not make me a qualified technician. Right, and, and, and just because you can get a successful sample is one thing, but you have to be able to troubleshoot and identify when you think you're having problems. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, the old breathalyzer was susceptible to many things, and so the operator had to actually do an interview of the test subject beforehand and then take the appropriate steps to correct out those issues. Because, again, we're not all cookie-cutter. 
So I would ask people, are you diabetic? Do you take insulin? Uh, you know, these sorts of things. And then I would know that maybe this breast sample could be elevated and being falsely affected by ketoacidosis or blood sugar levels or blood ketone levels that a diabetic or a person fasting would have. Can you take a but moment? The devices, sorry. I was going to say, can you take a moment and explain that? Because it's something you and I have been talking about a lot lately is this, is this diet. And there's a really big fad right now of people going on the keto diet where I'm pretty sure all they eat is chicken wings. <laughs> <laughs> but how yeah. does that impact breath testing? Okay, so again, we're not all cookie cutter, and our bodies respond to the chemicals that we put into them in a different way. And it has been understood for, well, basically since the beginning of breast testing back in the 1930s, and then later on with the breathalyzer in the 1950s, that persons who are fasting, persons who are um, on really weird diets, keto diets, um, persons who are diabetic are just not good candidates for breath testing. Now, what happens is, is that when you are subjecting your body to a period of extreme fasting, your body is now going to start to, and, and this is the purpose of doing the diet, right, is to start to metabolize those fatty deposits in your body. So mm-hmm. you, know, you want them off your thigh, and you want that fat into the bloodstream to be metabolized and to be burned off. When you do that, the, the body's response is to physiologically start producing chemicals because it's metabolizing the stored fat and not using sugar. So if you're on a diet that's low in, in, in carbs or high in carbs, low in sugar, a keto diet, what you're doing is you're putting your body into a position where it's starting to produce blood ketones. And there's a whole string that are produced, um, and, and they follow a particular pathway And it's only in the later stages that when you're having this diet that you're actually starting to produce acetone. And acetone is, you know, nail polish remover. So your body is going to turn stored fat into nail polish remover is what it basically does. But isn't the... that stuff... Oh, go ahead. Carry on. That that nail polish remover found on your breath is going to adversely affect the breath machine. And just because it was, I mean, it was really bad with the old breathalyzers, but the new technology is not immune from that because there have been a number of studies to say, hey, you know, even with the new fuel cell devices um, or the new infrared devices, uh, they they can be fooled by trace amounts of acetone and the other, you know, acetoacetate and beta hydroxybutyrate and all these other chemicals that are found on your body. So you get this witch's brew of chemicals in there, and you add a, add a beer to it. Now, all of a sudden, the unit can't differentiate between the beer and the other thing that's on your breath. So basically, the, the alcohol is masking the other chemicals. Right. And the other chemicals are enhancing the reading of the, of the breath device. And if I can, I'll tell you a really quick story. I, yeah. had, a, I had a diabetic um, uh, test subject in in Quebec, who was charged not once but twice uh, for driving while impaired. Both times were kind of random roadside checks. This man was a physician who was a pretty raging diabetic in addition to being a physician. And, you know, Dr. Heal myself, he was not doing a good job managing his own diabetes. 
And additionally, had, on this one particular occasion, had basically worked 12 or 14 hours in the hospital and then had to stop in at a fundraiser on the way home. Had, and by what witness accounts, are a single glass of champagne. And he blew like three times the legal limit. Wow. There's not, it's not possible that he could blow three times the legal limit off of a single glass of champagne. And this was witnessed. So let's just take his story at face value. Mm-hmm. And the particular device that was being used was an Elka sensor FST, which is the same one that's used in British Columbia. What I did was I, 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 I rigged up a simulator jar and I put in the equivalent of a glass of champagne in there in terms of breath alcohol concentration and added to it trace amounts of isopropanol and acetone, the kind of chemicals that we're going to find on a diabetic's breath. And I provided my breath sample into an intoximeter or alka sensor FST, and lo and behold, I, I went from an O2 reading to a 0.123 reading. Wow. So I went up 100 milligrams on that, on that device and just by adding a trace amount of this other chemical. How much, like less than a milliliter? Oh, far less than a milliliter, like less than half a milliliter. Wow. Something that you would actually find on a person, in a person's body, right? So he went from a reading of 20 milligrams to a reading of 120 milligrams. And just lo and behold, he had blown uh, 0.118, 118 milligrams. So we were right in the ballpark showing that this device would be, would be providing false positives. I issued my report and it went to the Quebec crime lab for review. And three months later, they totally withdrew the charges. So wow. obviously what happened with the crime lab is that they replicated my experiment and said, oh, yeah, actually, you know, add, add the one drink with these trace chemicals and, and we've got an equivalent reading to what this guy is, is talking about. And they, and they withdrew the charge. But that's the newest, latest technology, Kyla. And still it is... Um, uh, flummoxed, if you will, by these kind of physiological responses that people have. That's, I mean, that's so frustrating to hear because as I understand, when they do all of the, you know, the regular testing of the instruments, they don't test them that way. They don't add in um, chemicals to an underlying alcohol concentration or replicate an underlying alcohol concentration. They just, they just put the chemical in the simulator and blow it through and see if it detects that chemical on its own. Right, 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 right. And the problem is, is if, you, if you're if you using the, they're called interference chemicals. If you're testing the interference chemical alone, sometimes you have to have a really, really high concentration before the unit will even register that it's there. And so then the crime lab people say, well, hang on a second here. That means that you would have to be so diabetic that you were comatose or dead before this unit is even going to register this amount. That's not the real world. The real world is that, um, and let, let's let's go away from diabetes for a second. Uh, I have a bunch of, of workmen in my house right now repairing my broken home. Uh, it was damaged in the flood. And, and the house right now smells of chemicals because these guys are doing pipes and putting together the plumbing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they're occupationally exposed to the different chemicals that they're breathing in on a day-in, day-out basis as they're gluing these pipes and, and doing my plumbing. Now, it's not unreasonable for one of those guys to stop for a beer on the way home. Mm-hmm. And you've got a single beer under your belt, 
but you've been breathing these chemicals in all day long. These units, when they get confronted with that witch's brew of, of chemicals that are all put together, have a tendency towards saying, hey, you know, I've just identified alcohol here. That's all I know how to read. And so they give these really astronomical readings. And there's certain occupations that I'm very concerned with. I was at a presentation one time. I was, I was giving a presentation in Ohio, and I had about 250 lawyers in Ohio in this conference. And I was really interested in this occupational exposure. I said, hey, raise your hands if you've had a hairdresser as a client. And out of the 250 lawyers, about 150 put their hands up. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the, the hairdressers are, are breathing in, hairstylists are breathing in, you know, a wide variety of chemicals. And it's not just their workstation. It's the five other workstations in the salon, and they're doing it on a day-in, day-out basis. My concern is, is that, you know, if 150... <laughs> If out of a room of 250 lawyers, 150 have had clients that are hairdressers, it tells me one of two things. First possibility is that hairstylists have got severe alcohol abuse issues. <laughs> That's probably not the case. Probably more likely the issue is that they're being occupationally exposed to these t- different chemicals and the units are unable to differentiate that from regular alcohol. And when I get those clients back, I'll talk to the, you know, the, the lawyers who hire me and I get a phone call Basically saying, you know, my client came in, one of the uh, girls in the salon got um, engaged and so they bought a bottle of Prosecco and they shared a bottle of Prosecco between the four of them after work. And my client just blew 180. And that's not physically possible on a single glass of Prosecco. Mm -hmm. So what's the underlying thing that's causing the issue? And back to the New York Times article is that they started to discover that in fact, these sorts of issues are there, and they're worthy of public scrutiny. Um, they are concerned that people are being, I'm concerned that people are being falsely accused and falsely convicted. And, and it's really difficult, too, because you have to understand that for many, many lawyers, they don't understand the trials and tribulations of breath testing. You have to, you have to do a lot of training to teach yourself that stuff. And I've had lawyers say to me, well, yeah, but the reading is, you know, 100 milligrams and the legal limit is 80 milligrams. I, I've got no choice but to plead this person out. They, you know, they're done. The number is there. I've never plead someone out at 100. <laughs> oh, no, but I've heard that. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. You know, he blew 110 twice. We're screwed. There, <laughs> there's no way in the world that we can challenge this in court because I can't defeat those numbers. Sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, but... How do you change that? Like, how do you get people educated to the point of, of, you know, being able to make these choices for their clients to litigate these cases and to bring this evidence? Well, I, that's been my mission, if you will. I mean, the reason I started CounterPoint as a science journal for lawyers is to try to teach the lawyers these, these scientific principles and translate scientists into lawyers. Um, you know, you guys use different subsets of English language and the scientists do, and, and, you know, reading those scientific articles can be really daunting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you know, education has been, number one, the, the big thing. The other, the other thing that concerns me is that the, the status quo has been really well established by the crime labs and, you know, organizations in Canada like the Alcohol Test Committee, who basically are saying a version of, um, trust me, I'm from the government and I'm here to help, and these things are perfect. And 
that really bothers me. I, I think that we need to start taking a look, and this is one of the points that the New York Times article was really making, was that there are limitations to this technology. We can't ignore those limitations. And, uh, and, and there needs to be better scrutiny, better maintenance, better calibration. We've got jurisdictions, and Quebec is an example. They don't do annual maintenance on their devices anymore. They don't have it in their police budgets. They will use the device until it fails. And then, and only then, does it go in for repair. And the problem with that is, okay, it failed, you know, 10 o'clock on a, on a Saturday night, but it was used at 8 o'clock on a Saturday night, and it was used on Friday and Thursday and Wednesday before. Mm-hmm. Those charges are never withdrawn. So and you can't there even needs to be a better accountability for the use of the devices, better training for the officers, and better training for the lawyers to be able to identify when a client is is really telling them a story that they should be listening to. Now you testify a lot in the United States, so you right. get to deal with these jurisdictions where people have a lot of evidence that they can get about the breathalyzers and mm-hmm. they have a lot of leeway about the type of defenses they can mount. In Canada, right. we are not so lucky. Well, in Canada, they've been able to successfully, and I say they, the government and the organizations like the RCMP Crime Lab or the, uh, the Quebec Crime Lab, have been really successful at keeping discovery material and disclosure on those devices uh, out of the hands of the defense. Uh, you can't get necessarily maintenance and calibration records. You certainly can't get a running log of how the device was used. Um, and we now have, you know, the criminal code amended to list five items only that you're entitled yeah. to in disclosure, and you have yeah. to persuade a judge that you should get anything beyond that. Well, I mean, the, the, the position of the Alcohol Test Committee here in Canada has been something along the lines, I, I hear this all the time, that the historical performance of a device is not indicative of its reliability. Um, I, have a, I have a big problem with that for two reasons. First of all, right now I'm trying to sell my 2009 Chev Uplander. If anybody's interested, give me a call. <laughs> uh, but if you, you can't really sell it privately unless you generate a Carfax report to say, hey, hasn't been in an accident, mm-hmm. you know, wasn't stolen, uh, wasn't totaled off and, and, and repaired. Yeah, here are the repairs that I've had to do. Here's what's, yep. you know, what's worked well with it. Yes, that's right. So you show your repair and maintenance records and it's had its oil changes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Buy my car, it's reliable. <laughs> but now you've got a person going into court whose livelihood is on the line or their freedom is on the line. And the response to, okay, well, show me the numbers and how this was generated. Show me how this unit was calibrated. Show me how this unit was maintained. And the response of the government is, well, don't get that. You've got two good readings and you've got an air blank that's good and you've got a calibration check that's good. That's all you get. Mm-hmm. So there's more scrutiny involved for me selling my 2009 Chev Uplander than there is for getting a breath test through the courts. And there's something fundamentally wrong about that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I would I would be willing to put more risk just generally in buying a car than I would be with the possibility of ending up with a criminal record. That's right. That's right. And, and the thing is, when I get the discovery in the United States, 
where we will get in the normal course of a regular, you know, what I refer to as a vanilla DUI, just a, you know, kind of a regular occurrence uh, DUI charge, we will get maybe six months worth of data for the device. And I can show you as I'm going through the device logs, maintenance logs and the, and the usage logs are really telling. And as I'm going through, I'd say, you know what? This unit's going out of calibration. It's going to fail in about three weeks. And then I skip ahead a couple of pages and sure enough, taken out of service because it failed its calibrations and it had to be repaired and returned back into service, you know, two or three months later. Mm-hmm. You can see stuff like that all the time. I had one case where a girl was facing 45 years to life for a vehicular homicide. And when we finally got the maintenance and calibration records of the device, we found out that it was blowing an error message 68% of the time. Wow. And I ask you, what do you think the reliability is for the number that spit out in the other 32% of the time? Well, I'm, I, I, I'm biased. I, I would say none. <laughs> right? Yeah. Wow. And, and she was facing 45 years of life. The funny one with that particular unit was we finally got the maintenance and calibration logs. And the police in Denver were so exasperated at the unit's performance that one of the operators at about 3 o'clock in the morning in a fit of exasperation scribbled in the maintenance log, Unit 928 sucks. (laughs) (laughs) And (laughs) And of course, discovery we got. If you don't so, get if you don't get those maintenance logs, you don't know that one operator is of the opinion that that device right. is or that instrument is so fundamentally flawed that they don't want to use it. Right, that it's failing all the time and it sucks. So you know we've got a we've got a ways to go here in Canada to get access to that to those logs, and I think it's really interesting because we are living in a post stinchcomb society, right, mm-hmm. where discovery should be the de facto standard, but somehow. For breath alcohol testing, they've been able to, you know, water that down so that you just don't get access to those third-party records. So it's really too bad. Now, in Canada, how difficult is it for clients of, of yours to bring arguments about all of these uh, other sources of alcohol that registered on the instrument? Because as I understand, you can really only argue that there was improper operation or malfunction that led to an unreliable reading as opposed to um, operation or malfunction uh, or another source of alcohol. How do you get around that rule? We can't, not here. So basically in Canada, if you're blowing a reading into an evidentiary instrument at the police detachment that has uh, has been caused by isopropanol um, because Mm -hmm. you're diabetic and you're producing isopropanol, Mm-hmm. Sex to be you, you're convicted. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the sad reality of the situation, and it's unfortunate because um, if you take a look at it, they're limiting the type of available defenses. You can't you can't uh, you know argue anymore that it's fresh mouth alcohol. You can't argue that your BAC was rising at the time. You can't argue that you've got occupational exposure. You're only able to argue number one that the machine was either um, operated incorrectly, or it was flawed. It was broken. It was malfunctioning at the time. And yeah, not inherently flawed. Yeah, inher- yeah, not inherently flawed, but did, you know, broken that one because it was you know unit nine two eight sucks. And that that malfunction or that bad operation led to a reading beyond 
80 milligrams. So this puts a reverse onus back on the defense to prove something that they can't prove because we don't get access to the maintenance and calibration records anyhow. So you're in an impossible position. Absolutely impossible position. And I mean, I know that the law should not work that way, but it does. And in more and more, even in the United States too, DUI charges are becoming a reverse onus defense where it's, it's not enough to establish um, reasonable doubt. Reasonable doubt doesn't cut it anymore for a jury. In, in the United States particularly, you basically have to prove why the person was not impaired at the time that they were driving. Now, you can do it when you get access to this, you know, download and discover material. Mm-hmm. But you can't do it if you, if you have, you know, a black hole of discovery. You're, 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 you're being told in Canada that the only way that you can prove that this thing was operated incorrectly was by, by establishing it in court, and you can't establish that because you can't get access to the records for it. So it's an impossible task. Well, that seems inherently unfair. So would you, as an editor of a, a science and law journal, uh, a recognized expert across North America, would you say the law should change? Well, I'll get into a lot of trouble for that one. I, I, I one time <laughs> made a comment on the stand that this was inherently unfair. And the prosecution took great exception to the fact that I was calling something inherently unfair because they felt that I was drawing a legal conclusion with that. Right. I don't think fairness is a legal issue. I think fairness is a moral issue. And it certainly can be a scientific issue because as, a, as an investigator, as an accredited investigator and, and an expert witness, I have to look at things impartially. And, you know, just so you know, I mean, probably half the time that I review a file, I go back to the lawyer and say, well, you know, there's nothing here. I, I, I haven't been able to find any issue showing that the unit was malfunctioning, showing that the unit was operated incorrectly, mm-hmm. even when I have access to the data. So when I don't have access to the data, it's absolutely impossible to do. But even when I do have access to the data, you know, it's a, a, sometimes a 50-50 chance. Right. Depending on, and it's more the training of the lawyer than it is anything else. I mean, I, I assume that you are going to kind of vet your cases before you contact me about those particular cases. Yeah, I mean, generally. And then I, and then I vet them again. I take a look at them because I have to put my name at the bottom of a report. Mm-hmm. So would I say things are inherently unfair? Sure. Do I think things should change? Yeah, I do. But if I say that things should change, then all of a sudden I'm, you know, showing my bias because I'm promoting the idea of fair play and honesty and integrity. And, and good science. Yeah, and good science. God forbid we rely on good science and a full scientific record to make conclusions about a scientific proposition, which is the level of alcohol in a specific person's bloodstream at the time or within two hours after they ceased operating a motor vehicle. God forbid. Right. Right. God forbid we do that. But here's the bigger issue. Not only do we do we not accept those challenges or accept that scrutiny. And the point I was making with um, Stacey Cowley and Jessica Silver-Greenberg, the two reporters from The Times, you know, that whole saying about, you know, um, sunlight and transparency being the best uh, source of sterilization Mm -hmm. and disinfectant. 
we can we can disinfect the situation by looking at things um, from a technical point of view and and from a, a point of view of the operation of those devices. Mm-hmm. It's it would be fairly easy to do, but in Canada we are left with this situation where an officer who is now only really competent to push the green button pushes the green button, gets a sample, doesn't really realize the ramification of what's going on, and a, a number is spit out of a black box that we cannot examine. We cannot examine the production of that number in terms of the calibration or the maintenance or et cetera, all the things we discussed. Now that number goes before the courts and the way that the, the schema works, that you can't challenge that number because you need to have data that you no longer have access to, to challenge that number. And in its absence, that number is basically considered irrebuttable. Wow. And that's not right. No, I agree. I'm I'm with you 100%. I don't think it's right. <laughs> I don't like the way that our law has developed to presume guilt if you're charged with impaired driving. And I don't like mm-hmm. the way that we're prevented from looking into scientific issues. Not necessarily trying to uh, confuse the court with science, but just looking into whether there can be an issue there. As though the book is closed on the science of breath alcohol testing. And nothing else could ever possibly be raised uh, in relation to it. It just it, it, it drives me mad. Right. But that's my rant. Well, <laughs> yeah, and, and let me leave you with one thing. I, after I, I did an uh, interview that was broadcast nationally in the United States last week on uh, NPR, National Public Radio. And I, this morning, I actually received... Um, an email on my Twitter account. I didn't know that you could actually send an email privately on a Twitter account. I thought it was all posted. Anyway, um, this this mother wrote in about her daughter who um, had been um, convicted and was now on probation for a drug-related charge. Mm-hmm. And you will remember, Kyla, that when we uh, did some experimentation on that Drager 5000 unit, we found incidences of false positives on things other than marijuana. Mm-hmm. I mentioned this in the NPR report, and it just so happened that this girl who had been charged was on probation, had been keeping herself clean, had been working really hard for abstinence and counseling and getting herself back on track, her life back on track, in university, pulling out straight A's, getting her life together. And now all of a sudden, based on a random screen that was done with her probation officer, and she had had, lo and behold, a poppy seed muffin that morning, she was charged uh, for breach of breach of conditions, breach of probation, and was going back to jail. Wow. And because of that NPR radio interview, the mother insisted, she heard the interview that morning, now is confronted with this issue, and she insisted that her daughter go off and get uh, blood test. The urinalysis came back that the, the corrections officers did, and we saw it in Vancouver last summer where these things were getting false positives on not only the saliva test but the urinalysis. Mm-hmm. But when they did her blood work, it came back negative, and so the charges were withdrawn. And the lady phoned or emailed me basically to say, hey, thank you so much for for what you do and, and for keeping them all honest. This has gone a long way towards saving my daughter's life. It's hard enough to prove your abstinence and it's hard enough to be abstinent. But then all of a sudden when you're confronted with a bad test, that's going to really impact your life. 
were quite happy that they had listened to the radio program. So the fallout is starting to occur, and I'm 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 buoyed up by that. I'm I'm hoping that there will be something that improves in the future. Well, well, thank you, Jan, for taking the time to to talk about this and to, you know, put this information out there in a way that it's you know becoming accessible to more people. Um, if people need to contact you, how can they reach you? They can they can get in contact with me through Counterpoint Journal. It's counterpoint-journal.com. You can uh, send me an email through there. It's also um, at Jan Seminoff on um, Twitter. You can get in touch with me there. Okay. Well, thank you again for joining us on the Driving Law podcast and, and sharing your insight and wisdom into breath testing. I really appreciate the time. Always a pleasure, Kyla. Thank you. Thank you again to Jan Semenoff for joining us on the Driving Law podcast uh, and for your valuable insight uh, and wisdom about impaired driving and breath testing. And now, as always, it is time for the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. And this driver is a driver that was uh, tweeted out by the Delta Police Department, who was pulled over for speeding, who gave a uh, somewhat unique excuse uh, for his speeding. Uh, That's that he couldn't see his speedometer because he had so much crap on his dashboard uh, that he wasn't able to actually see uh, the speedometer of the vehicle. First of all, you don't have a defense to speeding if you can't see the speedometer of your vehicle. It's your responsibility to make sure that you're going the speed limit, and that means making your speedometer visible if it is not visible. Secondly, and and possibly more uh, importantly, um, if your vehicle uh, is covered in so much material that you can't see the controls of the vehicle, including the speedometer, you could be ticketed uh, under Section 195.1a of the Motor Vehicle Act for driving with the vehicle controls obstructed. Um, uh, Generally, that's for anything between you and the steering wheel, but your ability to control the vehicle at a safe speed by your own admission in that circumstance is hindered by the material on the dash. And so that too uh, could have a negative impact uh, on you if you were to take that ticket to court. So uh, if you're driving and you got something on the steering wheel uh, or on the dash or covering the controls of the vehicle, best bet, move it uh, before you lose it. And by lose it, I mean your vehicle. So uh, that is our Ridiculous Driver of the Week. And that is our Driving Law Podcast. Thank you for tuning in yet again. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law. Um, and you can find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or follow me on Twitter at IRP Lawyer or give us a call 604-685-8889. We're happy to help with any driving or law-related issue that you have. Okay, thanks very much and tune in next week.